0: of a lesson right now on rethinking how it is that Christians tell the story of the afterlife. Because we've gone through this huge, or we're going through this huge and seismic upheaval in worldview where we've gone from framing the world in Newtonian terms to framing the world in quantum terms. And what happens is it changes how we think about reality, not just science. It changes how we think about what are the gut instincts that we bring to the world. <clears throat> and so we spent the first lesson in this series of lessons thinking about how do we tell the Christian story of salvation when we live in a quantum world and then how do we tell the Christian story of the afterlife and it's a one idea built on top of another idea kind of affair that's the way these lessons go so I always feel a little bit bad when I do that because I think there's inevitability that somebody won't be able to be here for one of the ideas that build on top of the other idea and then for the same reason I hate breaking in the middle of the one idea on top of another lesson because it is doing just that thing however it is Easter (laughs) And this is an important day in our tradition. So we are going to stop the series uh, of lessons on the afterlife. We'll come back to it next week. Hopefully you will remember all of the one ideas on top of another when we get there. So today, this day, we in our tradition, we celebrate the truth that the spring teaches us every year. Because every year in traditions even other than our own, as the flowers return, as the verdance returns to the earth, the earth itself, uh, the first chapter of Romans, Paul tells us, the earth itself teaches us the profound ways of God. The earth teaches us that life overcomes death. The The earth teaches us that hope vanquishes We speak as Christians of our story through the lens of Jesus. That's how we speak this truth. And so we tell a story of death that shatters death. We speak of the death of the part that makes life for the whole. We tell a story of courage. We tell a story of love. We tell a story of good triumphing over evil. And we read the precious texts like we read this morning. We sing the songs like we sang this morning, and we say death is a paper tiger. We say that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is now thy sting? And as our text said this morning, we recount that death was such a formidable foe because it came with, as a traveling companion, with the heavy code of law. We had been duped into a belief system about reality. That reality was a quid pro quo kind of arrangement. In other words, there was a thing that happened to you if you did this thing or did not do this thing and God was wrapped up inside of it. In other words, you would do a sin and you would get a punishment from God. Sin and be punished for it. But the experience of those who lived through the first Easter took these deeply entrenched categories of reality and blew them to pieces. Something happened at that first Easter that changed the game. Something happened that nobody had expected. What death is not the final word? What punishment for sin is not the organizing principle around which we uh, live the spiritual life? And we see how they framed that early experience of the first Easter by the texts that they left for us. They said that inextricably linked with death are the concepts of sin and guilt. In their minds, they were a singular package. It wasn't the reductionist idea about death that just speaks to the issue of heartbeats and breath. Theirs was a much bigger understanding of this reality. The guilt that informs so much of the human condition. The shame that we all carry around as that original wound that tells us that we are inextricably fundamentally flawed. The idea that Well, the fear that so deeply shapes how we act and react according to the lives that we build for ourselves, all of that, guilt and shame and sin and punishment and death, as a total package, this is not what we thought it was, the first Easter proclaims. This is not what we believed it to be, God is not what we thought God was. Punishment isn't the point. Being penalized for breaking the moral code, that's not the point. Being separated from God because God is holy and we are sinful and therefore there is a gulf between us. This is not our story and we didn't know that. It is so deeply ingrained in our instincts. We couldn't understand that. Easter blew the categories that we had in our minds. The reality that we had fashioned was plowed under and destroyed. And so for them, the point of Easter was not just the physical phenomenon of deadness not being the end of the story. It wasn't, again, just about heartbeats and breath. That was part of the story, but it wasn't even the headline. The headline was this new reality. Sin and guilt and shame, the forces around which we have organized our lives, the actions and reactions that make up so much of our days the narrative that we live out of that tells us what to look for and what to find, the instincts that we bring to our days, all of that sin and shame and guilt has been shown for the empty shell, for the hollow emptiness that it is. Just as death itself has been shown for the hollow empty shell that it is. And that changes everything. It changes how we spend our energies. Our spiritual lives do not have to be reduced to battling with sin. Our spirituality doesn't have to be reduced to placating God by doing the right thing, saying the right prayer, getting the right ritual. It doesn't have to be that anymore because we no longer have to avoid divine disapproval. God, our story tells us, really is love. And forgiveness really just is. We don't have to work some kind of a religious system in order to get forgiven, Easter tells us. Forgiveness and grace and mercy and acceptance and love, these are baked right into the system. There's nothing that we do or do not do that makes us acceptable or not acceptable to God or to the universe or to ultimacy, to this biggest reality that we can't even contain. As I say so many times, God is love the way sun is shine. God is forgiveness the way water is wet. You can no more make God not love, make God not forgiveness, than you can make sun not shine and water not wet. And for those who experienced this mystery of the first Easter, whatever it was that happened, this was their take-home message. The whole system of sin and punishment and law and sacrifice was empty. It was shadow. And now, for those who have eyes that will see and for those who have ears that will hear, now this new reality changes everything. You don't have to fret and strive and grind and push to make yourself okay before God. You don't have to stretch and grind and strive and push to make yourself okay before ultimacy or even before your own very self. Life doesn't have to be about making yourself acceptable when you're not. You can no more be not precious. You can no more be not loved. You can no more be not worthy than the sun can be not shine or water can be not wet. That is the Christian message of Easter. And even today, some who celebrate Easter don't hear the profound, earth-shaking gravity of this shift that this day is about. Is that your phone, dear? It might be mine. (laughs) I know it's one of ours. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) But it came at a good point. That is the point of Easter. Now, in years past, and in the book two, I stress that we do a much better job of keeping mystery in our story of Easter. We've tended to make it very concrete through the years. We say exactly what happened, what time of day it happened, when it happened, how it happened, what it meant, how it went, all those kinds of things went. But the earliest texts had a great deal of fuzziness involved in it. People didn't even know the vocabulary to use to describe what it was they had experienced because the experience was so reality category breaking that they began to stumble over vocabulary to talk about what had happened. They would tell contradictory stories. On the one hand, they would be walking on the road having a conversation and then without even realizing what had happened, they realized, oh, that was the life of Christ somehow in this person I didn't recognize. And then they would talk about there being an actual presence and so it was confusing. And when we tend to pin things down with concrete specificity and say it was this way and it wasn't this way, it happened this way and it didn't happen that way, we tend to do so because of some historical arguments that have happened from that time until now. We tend to do it because over the last 1600 years, we've been trying to get everybody on the same page. And unfortunately, we did that for political reasons. We did that in order to give the uh, Roman Empire a place to consolidate itself and a way to go forward. And so all, we, had, we all had to agree, but if you go before that time, you realize there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty associated with it. I asked my kids early on whether they preferred the science or uh, literature, the way that we asked the question was, do you prefer numbers or do you prefer letters? And uh, Haven preferred numbers, the boys preferred letters, and I remember Daniel saying one time, you know, literature is so much easier than math, because in math, there's only one right answer. But in literature, when you read a story, you can say just about any old thing, and if you support it well with good thinking, it's true. (laughs) And I said to them along the way, so now, which, which approach do you think we ought to bring to the Bible? Do you think we ought to bring the numbers approach to the Bible, where it's just one way and only one way? Or do you think we ought to bring the literature away? And what has happened in our time, in our generation, is a shift away from what is called systematic theology to narrative theology, which means we do a better job conveying truth when we don't convey it through doctrines and dogmas, and we do it through stories Because stories have this capacity to be elastic and to grow as we grow. And as we learn new things and have new understandings of the universe, story is elastic and moves with it. Numbers tend to be brittle. They either are or they aren't, and they break along the way. And so when many people are leaving the Christian church today, it has less to do with our story and more to do with the brittle doctrines that we have created around that. And one of the places we've done that is with our Easter story. About 200 years ago, we started a fight. 180 years ago. We started a fight, and it had to do with our response to Darwin, and it had to do with our response to uh, biblical scholarship, because people were understanding a great deal about the origins of scriptures, and scholarship was taking it in different ways, and it was frightening. And people listened to what Darwin had to say about the, how human beings came to be, and it was frightening. And in the response to that frighten, to that fear, people clamped down and said, this is what you've got to believe to be Christian. And they chose five things. Well, they chose 14, but they chose five. And one of those five was, you have to tell the story of Easter this way. It happened this way at this time at this way. And, this is... and the physicality of the uh, day, the physicality of the experience became the emphasis and the narrative. The story began to be de-emphasized. Well, as we're going through this shift, this transition that we are in history right now, one of the things that we're doing is recovering story and going back to looking at things the way that we would look at stories and tell what they mean. So today, I'm going to take us through a story approach, a narrative approach to thinking about Easter, and I hope for you, as it has for me, it makes your life, it gives direction and focus to how you live your days. Every year at Christmas and Easter, I will tell some facet of the story that we celebrate, some dimension of it. This aspect that I want to talk about today comes from a conversation that I had with George uh, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, when he was telling me about the scripture reading that he had been doing for that morning, and he was telling me about the insights that he had had in his own life around that story. It was the part of the story that leads up to Easter. It's what we read when we read the last part of these accounts where Jesus is preparing for the end. And about that time in the text, one of the things that it says is, Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Now, the context and the understanding around that is this. Jesus had upset the apple cart. He had come with a message of life and light that is very much what we just talked about. This thing isn't about a punishment reward system. This thing isn't about living your life in such a way that you placate God. This thing is about the love of God just is. He had told that story, and in the telling, he had dramatically undercut the religious system as it existed, as that narrative does for most religious systems. And the people who were being undercut, they didn't like it, not one little bit. And being a little upset with Jesus, he knew that if he were to go up to Jerusalem and he were to go into this time of great festivity, and if he were to take a place of prominence on this day and give that message a highlighted showcase in that moment, it would probably culminate in his death. And knowing that his message that was undercutting the very foundation of the religious system would culminate in his death, the text says, Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Determined to make his death mean something, determined not to cut and run so as to save his own skin, Jesus opted to awaken his generation to a deep and profound truth and to give his life in the process of doing it, He opted to give his life to reveal the empty hollowness of a religious, religious system that was binding people into placating God when they didn't need to. Jesus determined to give his life to reveal light, to open the doors to the kingdom of God we've been talking about these last weeks. And again, knowing that this would culminate in his death... Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. If you recall during worship last week, the text that we read that was being read across the planet last week, last Sunday was this. The early followers of Jesus had this recurring refrain, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Have this heart set in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus was willing to give it all to serve the greater good and have that same mindset in you, that willingness to give it all, to not be so concerned about saving your own skin that you would let the whole system go to hell in a handbasket. Don't do that. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus set your face to go up Jerusalem and make your life Means something. As we mentioned several weeks ago, the Phoenix was one of the early symbols that was used by the Christians. Before they hit on the cross as the symbol of their faith, they used the symbol of the phoenix, that mythical bird that would give its body to be burned so that new life might emerge. And they, they captured that image and say, that is how we want to live. We want to give our lives in service to this new life, this new understanding, this new way of being so that it can emerge. They saw Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to put his face, to go to Jerusalem in those terms, giving one's very self in order that new life might emerge. And they encouraged one another, have that same mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And they saw that giving of their lives in service to something uh, bigger in two ways. First, they saw it in terms of one person doing that on behalf of another John said it this way, greater love has no one than this, than they, like Jesus did, would give their lives in service to another. They saw that taking even death in order to serve the greater good as something that we do for others, but they also saw it in terms of their own interior life and growth. Let me go up and face death to this thing within me so that I might experience a new life on the other side. There is a way of death that is set before us. That's why I so much appreciated the song that George had written for us. Because there is a life and there is a death. And in that death, it does make way for a new life. When that death is set before us, they said, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Don't fear death, death is a portal into life. Look at the phoenix. The phoenix burns up so that new life could be born. Don't fear death, death is a paper tiger, it's an empty shell. Don't fear death, death is nothing to be feared. Be like Jesus, set your face to go to Jerusalem. I have a friend who is struggling with alcohol, it's a problem for him. But alcohol is so integrated into the life that he has constructed for himself that it is present at all the times and in all the places that makes life good. Alcohol is the lubricant that makes love possible. Not just sex love, just the people that he is part of, the community that he is associated with, where he loves and is loved, all the people who respect him, all the people who treat him well, alcohol is seamlessly integrated into that dynamic. All the women that he has in his life who could potentially become the one are all seamlessly integrated with the process of alcohol. All the goodness that he has created in his life is somehow intimately connected with alcohol. And he's not ready to die to alcohol. He's not ready for the Christian experience of salvation that we talked about that has very little to do with the afterlife, has so much to do with being able to move into the new dimensions of life. Now, the first of the 12 steps toward recovery is this. We came to recognize that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives were out of control. We came to recognize that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives were out of control. We came to recognize that there is a force that is in our lives that will continue to dominate and define our lives as long as we are alive, unless something beyond ourselves intervenes. We came to recognize that unless this part of our life dies... It will always control us. Now, in the last year, my friend has had a few, wow, this could be hitting bottom, kinds of experiences that might frighten just about anybody. And when they happened, he started going to meetings. And each time, he was invited to take his one-day chip to start his journey of sobriety. And each time he went, he would politely decline and not take a chip. And when he and I were talking about it, I said, well, that's a good thing. That's an authentic thing. That's a truthful thing. Because I said, here's what's going to happen when you take your first chip. You're going to start a series of changes that are going to invite that other thing to intervene in your life. And when you do, alcohol is going to be removed. And the life that you have built is going to die. The relationships that have defined you and made your life function and work are going to die. And the you that you have constructed in order to make life good, that you is going to die. What the spiritual tradition calls that part of you that's going to die is the false self or the ego as self or the homemade you version of self. And that self is going to die. And as long as you think that you can manage the world that you live in using your ego as self strategies, as long as you think you can hope and cling to the idea that you can keep this thing that you've created and not have these really awful bad things happen, as long as you think that, you won't be working your recovery because death is what awaits you when you start your journey of recovery. And death to the self that has been keeping you afloat. Death to the you that you have presented to others and you have come to believe of as yourself. It'll be death to the love that you get from the people who only know you as ego, as self. And until you're ready to die, you stay where you are. Now the nice thing is you can white knuckle this for a good long time you can hold on really tight and try really hard but as long as you keep holding on to ego as self you're going to remain to live an ego as self kind of life but on the other hand when the day comes that you are ready to die when the day comes when you are ready to start the journey of deconstruction of ego as self begin to turn and begin to walk a lifetime of this path. The testimony of the 12-step tradition and the testimony of the Christian tradition and the testimony of the ancient wisdom and the story of Jesus is this. When a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it begins to bear life. When a grain of wheat is ready to die, it is ready to experience the fullness of true life. But as long as a grain of wheat holds on to the husk and guards that husk and preserves that husk and fights fiercely to protect that husk, that husk is all it will experience. It will never emerge into the full destiny that it was designed to be. The counterintuitive wisdom of the spiritual life, the counterintuitive wisdom of our Easter story is this, my destiny is a death destiny. My destiny is a resurrection destiny, which is about a great deal more than the afterlife. That is part of the story. But again, as I said earlier, not even the headline. It is about living the life that we get to live on this earth fully. It is about living the life that we get or for these moments that we have on this planet not stuck in the confines of the lesser self. It is about spe- experiencing the death and resurrection into our true selves that is the richness of our heritage. To fully experience being human is to die and to resurrect. It is a counterintuitive process to be sure. We don't like the idea of death, even false self-death, because the homemade selves that we hammered out in order to make it on this world, in order to get people to like us, in order to do all the things that we've done that have made our lives go, even that, though it is false, it is the only self that we know, and so we are not in a hurry to let it go into the ground and die. I'm not ready to give up the me that I have created that is making my life work. I'm not ready to give up other people's good opinion of me. I'm not ready to give up making sure that everyone thinks well of me because I have to tell you, everybody thinking well of me works, it makes my life go. I'm not ready to give up the big fat bank account because the big fat bank account makes me feel important. And truth to be told, there's some part of me deep inside that doesn't feel important. I'm not ready to give up the big fat bank account because it makes me feel secure. And if I'm honest with myself, there is this nagging doubt inside of me that I am secure. And I use this as a tool. It helps me feel that which I am not. I'm not ready to give up being right Because when I am right, I respect myself. And to be honest, there's part of me inside of me that doesn't respect myself. Or I'm not ready to give up being right because it makes you respect me. And there's part of me that really doesn't believe that if you knew who I was, that you would respect me. And so I'm going to fight fiercely to hold on to being right. I'm not ready to give up the me that I've constructed that makes my life work to which Jesus replies If you're not ready to give up everything if you're not ready to give up your father and your mother, your spouse, your children, everything you hold dear and precious if you're not ready to give up even your very self then you're not yet ready to follow me you're not yet ready to experience the god life, the full life, the true life, the kingdom life but when you are ready Have this mindset in you that was also in Jesus. Have this heart set that is in you that was also in Jesus. If you, like Jesus, are ready to put your face toward Jerusalem, If you are ready to enter as a grain of wheat into the ground and die, if you are ready to give up the false self, if you are ready to give up everything you know of as self, then you are ready to experience the fullness of life. I've got a little app on my phone. It's a countdown app. It says 88 days now, 88 days until the boy gets in the car and drives away to college. And I look at that countdown app and I have a mixture of sorrow and relief. <laughs> but I do feel an impending deadline coming out and he's feeling me feeling the deadline. And the deadline is I got to get the boy ready to go. I got to get him out the door successfully. And I tell him all the time. I said, "I do not want you to come home with your tail between your legs. I want you to come home a conquering hero." And this is what you're going to need. You're going to need to know this, and you're going to need to know this, and you're going to need to know this. And I've got a a little Evernote folder, and I keep all the things that I got to tell my son before he goes out the door. And we go through them all, and we do that. And the last one that we went through was just this morning. I was in the shower, and I realized I got to tell him this again. So I go down (laughs) to the end of the hall, and I bang on his door, and he's fast asleep. And I wake him up. You got to know this before you go out the door. And I said, what do you do if you've got to chop your arm off? And he says, what are you talking about? (laughs) I said, what do you do if you've got to chop your arm off? And he said, okay, I remember this one. If you've got to chop your arm off, chop your arm off. Don't, because you're afraid to chop your arm off, chop it off one inch at a time. If you've got to, if you ever come to the place where you've got to do this thing, do this thing. I said, if you ever have to go live in your car because you've run out of money, just go live in your car. If you have to go back and apologize for something that you are so ashamed of, you go back and apologize for the thing. You take it on the chin. You do what it takes to do. If you ever have to cut, chop your arm off, chop the damn thing off. Don't, because you're afraid, chop it off one inch at a time, which is another way of saying, set your face to go to Jerusalem. If you realize that the only way to true life is through the death of the false self, chop the damn thing off. Deal with what needs to be dealt with. Because on the other side, there is true life, abundant life eternal life Jesus called it which doesn't have to do with an endless chronology of moments after we die it has to do with God life experience the fullness of all that there is because when you are ready to walk into the death of the false self when you have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus and you are ready to face the day of your death give up everything that you have known as yourself then you are ready to experience the fullness of life then you are ready for a religion that is not about earning your way, which so many generations labored under, a religion that was about placating God. You are ready for that when you are ready to let the false self die. You're ready for a peace that passes understanding. You're ready for life on the other side of death. You're ready for a truth that sets us free. When you have eyes that can see, when you see the cost that will be exacted of you by giving up your false self it's usually accompanied by seeing the cost that exacted is exacted of you living in your false self Because living in your false self, your strategy to keep people liking you or keep yourself feeling secure, keep yourself in charge, it is a tragic reduction of the lives that we get to live. We hold on to power because power works a little bit, but then we're reduced to the life of holding on to power. We cling to security because security works a little bit, but then our lives are reduced to those security-seeking strategies We maintain a death grip on what people think of us because having people think well of us works a little bit, but then our lives are reduced to those strategies that we live. And if eyes wide open to the high cost of the ego as self and to the high cost and the uproar and the mayhem that accompany us when we begin to be willing participants in the death of that ego as self, then... We are ready to put our faces toward Jerusalem. Then we're ready for the spiritual journey. Then we're ready to begin the journey of Christian salvation. Then we're ready to begin, as we've been saying these weeks, building the kingdom of God. So each Easter and each Christmas, we focus on one dimension of our story, and today is the, it is this. The counterintuitive wisdom of the ages is this. Death begets life. Setting one's face toward Jerusalem is no fool's errand. Willing participation in the death of our own ego is wisdom of the highest order. And when we do, we discover the ancient truth that death is a paper tiger. We ask with those who have gone before us, Oh, death. Where is your sting? So Spirit of God, may ours be the experience of, not simply the doctrinal assent to, but the experience of the light and life that is our heritage. Be it so among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.